Hello, welcome back. 831 Podcast, episode 36. 36, I think, right? Um, yeah, it's been, we've been busy. So busy that I've even lost lost count of what episode we're on. Um, yeah, as always, uh, no more housekeeping, nothing to go on with. I think we're getting the announcement tomorrow about what's going on lockdown-wise, so I'll know whether we've got more of these to come and how quickly, etc. So, yeah, until then... Just shout out to normal sponsors, uh, Trojan Fitness, Trojan Nutrition Bristol as always, A3 Academy where I teach and train, Sweatbox where I teach and train, Pedro Bassa BJJ, uh, The Cloud Seller Limited. Always looking for new sponsors, always looking for new ideas for guests, so please fire them to me. Thank you as well for the awesome feedback I've been getting from people about the uh, podcasts and I will keep them going and I appreciate you all listening and I appreciate all your feedback subscribe to the youtube channel um even if you don't watch them on youtube pop over there subscribe to the youtube channel it helps us promote this which helps us get better guests basically so yeah thank you very much everybody for listening it's going really well and i really enjoy doing it when i get feedback from you guys it makes it 10 times better today's guest gary turner i trained with gary back in 2008 ish um gary's a professional or former professional fighter he's fought Every kind of fighting you can imagine, karate, kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA, 13 world titles across a plethora of different sports. He's a veteran of the game. He's been in it a long time. Um, yeah, we talk fighting, but also we talk his career now. He's a fully qualified hypnotherapist, hypnotist, and he's studying a PhD, a multidiscipline PhD, looking at the effects of impact and trauma and head trauma on the brain and how we age etc so cte and stuff like that so this is a really interesting one i really enjoyed this gary's a really interesting guy there are some glitches we've had some really bad internet here virgin media has been terrible the last few days and our internet keeps dropping out and there's some really bad glitches in this one please stick with it please listen to it they last a couple of seconds each time at the most. So please stick with this. Um, I have been onto Virgin Media and hopefully we can get this fixed. But it doesn't detract from the message that Gary's putting out and the information he has. It's well worth a listen. So please stick with it. Ride out the couple of seconds of glitches here and there. None of them last for more than five seconds at the longest. So yeah, I've listened to it back and it's completely fine. So stick with it. Gary really deserves your the audience and... I really think that you guys will appreciate what he's got to give as well. So, yeah, this is it. Episode 36, Gary Turner. Hopefully I'll see you guys very soon on the next one. Thank you very much. Okay, Gary, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me to come on. It's a great honour. Oh, mate, my pleasure. It's uh, Obviously, I've... I, like, I've seen most of your career through fighting-wise, um, and we yeah. trained together back in the early days, 2008, 9, 10, all around that time. And yeah. then the way that your career's gone, then how you've progressed after fighting, now that I'm towards the end of my career, I look at what you've done. I was like, here's a guy who, A, I've got a lot in common with within the fighting realm, but also the way that you think about things and the way that you seem to address things in your uh, approach after fighting just made me think I, I need to talk to you, really. So it is honestly my pleasure to have you on. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, that post-fight career is a funny one. When, like, like yourself, you know, you 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 you're having, and because you know, you're still continuing a very long career. Uh, I obviously had a very very long career, uh, and then when you suddenly stop, it's like, well, what happens next? Uh, that transition from being a professional sportsman to being, heck, heck what what am I? Your entire identity changes, let alone how you live your life. So yeah, it's uh yeah, that's a big thing when you when you stop fighting. Yeah, I mean, lots of people say, um, like, oh, why does BJ Penn keep doing it? And why does this person keep doing it? And why does Mike Tyson want to fight? And it's, like, I try and explain to people, until you know what fighting's like, it's very hard to, to contemplate what it must be like to give up. But also, a lot of these people who make it a long way have very little else in their life. So yeah. I've been lucky in that I have a multitude of, like, base jumping, skydiving, paragliding, writing... So for me, when it's over, uh, I know I've got avenues that I can explore. But for a lot of people, in order for them to make it towards the top, it's all encompassing. And when they give it up, they literally have nothing until they find another part of themselves. Yeah, I used to train two to f- two to four times a day, Monday to Friday. Um, and then obviously you've got the food and everything else and the recovery, the sleep. Uh, I still kept my businesses running, self-employed uh, around all that training. Give me the freedom to go and do what I need to do. Because back when I was competing, the money, I'm, I'm like a, a, a footballer from the 80s compared to the premiership of today. Yeah. The money that's there now was definitely not there back then. So you had to keep on income as well. It's sort of the love of life. Uh, but then afterwards what 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 do i do um i needed to keep fit and and that's why i got my huskies because if i'm not up by eight o'clock running them they get me up to run them and it kept me disciplined and just helped me through that that transition and then you you've got this crazy mindset that you're doing stuff that a lot of people would never think of doing so that's when i went and started doing ultra marathons because i could you know i'm never going to win them but they're fun to do it's, it's finding that new focus which direction you're gonna go um and then uh, was it last last year almost a year ago today i had a, a replacement hip uh, i had an injury two years before that uh, while running a dog took me out an off league dog took me out and caused me an injury two years later i went from running 120 miles a week to not being able to take a step without agony so luckily i had a, a uh, I got signed off by a, a top osteosurgeon, uh, Kerry Acton. He is awesome. Um, and you know, two years after the injury, I've got a new hip. Um, I was doing body pump classes eight days later. Twelve weeks, I was cleared to run, fight, kick again, uh, wow. and I'm back up doing everything again now. But that that two year period of heck, now I've lost my running identity, my my training identity. Because I was so limited by my hip, what do I do then? And that's when it came on to the doing the doctorate uh, to refocus. So all these transitions are constantly happening, and it's what we do about it that counts. Um, otherwise, I think I would have fallen into depression or something. It would have been it would have been a nightmare. Exactly. Um, so let's touch quickly on your um, fight career. We'll go over it a little bit because it is obviously a massive part of who you are. But subsequently. I think the most interesting part for me is what you've done post fighting. Um, uh-huh. uh, so, but but you had such a uh, such a dominant career. As in, I remember uh, when I was first starting, and I remember back in the early days of MMA, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. You were very competitive, especially in the kickboxing um, world and stuff. So, I think it's very good that we touch on that and we have a look at your career. So, how how long was your career? How many fights? And how did it start? Oh, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, this is. I mean, this is this is a, a podcast in itself. So I'll give you the, the the brief highlights. So career highlights started with judo in 1976. Started competing in 78. My career highlights are 13 world titles across three different fight sports, which is jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, Thai boxing. I've been British team at judo, British sport, uh, British schools judo team. Um, I was British Wushu Kwan champion. Um, I've done karate tournaments. Um, I, I obviously K1 UK champion. So was it 13 world titles uh, at three different sports? I've been a British or UK champion at three more. Uh, and then obviously you've got the mixed martial arts career that I was there at the inception development uh, yeah. um, and sort of the, the heyday of British uh, um, MMA um, just by default. <laughs> I only did that because I could. Um, so yeah, I've had a, a long and varied career. I've probably had uh, well over a thousand competitive bouts across every discipline. Uh, and my Wikipedia page has only got the highlights of sort of the the, the main uh, the main elements of my career. And even the professional career has got fights missing. Um, they've got mistakes as well. Actually, if someone wants to go on and correct it, it's got that fought Duke Rufus. I didn't okay. fight Duke. It was Rick that I fought, Rick Rufus that I fought. But it's, it's down as Duke, I think, on Wikipedia. But I can't change it. You can't change your own wiki page. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so yeah, I've been around a long time, um, uh, a long and varied career across a lot of disciplines. Um, and possibly if I stuck at one, I might have done better at that one. Yeah, I might, if I just stuck at kickboxing, I might have actually achieved more in the K1 field. If I'd stayed at judo, I might have actually achieved my dream of being an Olympian. Um, but I didn't. When someone said, can you do this? I'd be like, yeah, I'll give it a go and just go there. And, you know, it's like when uh, uh, the 10K karate clash. Gary, fancy coming and do that? I'm not a karate fighter. No, but you can fight. He says, yeah, I'll, I'll have a go at the rule set. Yeah. So I went and did it. It was a lot of fun. I lost to, uh, is it Paul Newby that I lost to? World bronze medalist. And I lost three, two. I lost by one point to him. Um, so the fight, I mean, it was far better than me. <laughs> I was also twice his size. Um, it's like a little zip zipping around everywhere. But if someone said, can you do something? I would go and do it. Yeah. Um, shoot fighting back in 1992, I think it was. Um, uh, Kev Brewerton, um, so I was doing Laogar Kung Fu and points kickboxing with, with, with Kev Brewerton. He said, come on, let's go over to, uh, uh, to Rimini in Italy for the Golden Dragon Cup. It's light, continuous kickboxing. Okay, so we went over there only to find out it was shoot fighting, full contact, punches, kicks, knees, throws to the floor. I'm like, okay, I've never thrown a leg kick before. This is, you know, way back then. Um, Sandy Holt was there and he'll, he'll tell you the name of his fighter. But I would suggest that I was Britain's second international mixed martial artist on any format that was to do with full contact mixed martial arts. I'm only the second because Sandy's fighter went on before me because he was lighter. <laughs> the lighter category went on first. Um, I, ended up, I ended up winning it. Um, I, I fought um, uh, an Italian boxing champion in the final uh, and one of my knees took out some of his teeth. Uh, he was laughing at it afterwards. He's saying, "Oh, look what you did!" I'm like horrified, you know. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, if if someone said, "Can you do it?" I'd say, "Don't know, but I'll find out." And yeah. you know, and and that's how I left my career. Um, yeah, just, I think that's um yeah. that's a, a great personality trait. I mean, in so I often look back at my career and I'm the same. I think perhaps if I'd have stuck in just an MMA instead of falconry and base jumping is perhaps I could have gone further and I could have done the stuff. But 
then maybe I wouldn't be able to do these things that I do now and talk to such a varied group of people because I wouldn't have so much to relate to. So someone like yourself is when you become very, um, uh, very focused on one thing, to not be as multifaceted means it's going to impact the rest of your life yeah. and what you want to do afterwards. So you're, the fact that you then pursue a career and what you're doing and you want to go on and do a PhD and pursue education. I think that's all relevant to the fact that you experimented with so many different elements of your pro career as a fighter. Yeah, it's it's you know I, I've never someone someone it's Tom Mullins, British Jiu Jitsu manager, uh, uh, donkeys years ago. He says you know if someone gives you an opportunity, explore it. It's not an opportunity until you explore it. End result, because of the people I mix with, um, I mean, I can I can claim, like you, to be a, a tiny minuscule bit. Let's just say I didn't never never even I won't even consider base jumping. But in '91, yeah. I trained three members of the Red Devils, the kickboxing, yeah. and because of the Red Devils, I didn't train them. So they took me to Netherhaven, and up I went with G Lee. Had uh, Steve Jelf was a Red Devil instructor at the time. Had little Steve on his back, on, on my back, and this tiny little jumpsuit on, so I'd have all cuddled, so I didn't get my nads. <laughs> uh, you know, and we bundled out of fourteen thousand out of G Lee over Netherhaven. So like you, I can claim to have been, have been, not you can claim to currently be a <laughs> gravity-powered earth-seeking wind-called meat missile a true sky god <laughs> so, but yeah if, if, if opportunities arise and 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 you take them you know or, yeah. or, or at least you you investigate them because you never know how good things are going to turn out exactly. end result is you know you, you get so many varied areas you meet so many interesting people uh, even if it's a field you don't want to go into for example, um, I'm a good friend with Buster Reeves, formerly the world's top stuntman, now one of the world's top stunt coordinators. He was in a British team with us. In fact, when he started his stunt career, he came down to live with me because it was closer uh, to, to all the studios. Uh, and you know, he gave me a shout like, hey, Gary, we need some real fighters for some fight scenes for a film. You, you up for it? I'm like, yeah, yeah why not? So it was, uh, that one was Nick Love's film, The Firm, uh, football violence remake of the 1984 football violence classic. Um, and we went there as uh, there was four strategically, uh, sorry, five, five, four, four strategically placed stunt guys, 16 actors and around 60 real hooligans to keep under control. And we just, it's like step inside that movie world, do a little bit, understand it better and then step out of it again and leave it for those who want to do it. You know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's like you with your, your variety of, of activities that you do and interest. It's, it's just like, we just do it because we can, I guess. Yeah, people say to me all the time, is there anything you can't do? And I was like, well, there's there's nothing I won't do. There's nothing I won't try. There's nothing I won't do. Can I do the things? A lot of the times you, you discover stuff and you're like, eh, I've tried it. It's not for me. But there's nothing I won't try, definitely. You, I think that's uh, I, I think that's something that we lose now or we're losing with the modern world and technology and social media and um, the internet. Lots of people are, you know, I mean, the amount of kids now who don't lift up bits of board and see if there's slow worms underneath or yeah. <laughs> just random stuff that, you know, they're, you know, I just just go out and do something. Just do everything that you can, because we're on a spinning ball of dust in an infinite like mass in the air. Like, surely we should just try everything because in a minute we're gone. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm like yeah. you in that respect. 
Yeah, life's life. Life. I mean, it's funny that um, I, was, I was talking, you know, onto a little bit of psychology. We only have that perception of time. We only have our own personal perception of time. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm pushing fifty. I'm fifty this year. <laughs> <laughs> I still act twelve, but I'm pushing fifty. You're looking so, good for it, though, for someone who's had the career that you've had. Thank you for Wesley to say that. For the others that are looking at the screen, you can tell I'm also a hypnotist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to get the compliment, though, no, thank you. Uh, but it's it's like the the longer you live, your, your concept of time changes. For example, it's Christmas. It'll be like, oh, it's another Christmas. But if you take a five-year-old kid, this is only probably the second or third Christmas where they've got an idea of what it is. It's like, wow, it's all the magic of it. So on lockdown, we're what, six, seven weeks into lockdown. For us, it's not actually perceptually that long. But say for a teenager, it's a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I remember at school, I needed to watch the uh, show my age. Remember the series, The Young Ones? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. If I missed out on watching The Young Ones when it was on, I would be devastated because I wouldn't be able to chat to everyone because everyone would be talking about it the next day at school. Uh, you don't want to miss a night out with your mates because, oh, my God, you'll never be able to catch up with them. So I, I can just imagine this lockdown. When we, well, we recall this, what, six, seven weeks into the lockdown. Uh, and for us, it's like, yeah, OK, sure, it's a drag, but, you know, it's not too bad. But for the youth, oh, my God, it, it's going to be an incredible lifespan for them. Yeah. Uh, and it's limiting them going out and doing all the various bits that you're just talking about. Yeah, I mean, like people have been uh, critical there. That people have said, oh, look at all these idiots. Keep your kids inside and stuff. And it's like, uh, like I say to people, you're you're it's a very ignorant view because you're not taking into account the psychological impact on a teenager. And then like you people look at kids, teenagers, etc., and they look at them and they're like, Oh well, how bad have you got it? You've got Xbox, you've got this, you've got that, and it's like. But what you're what you're what you're taking away is this is a child that's constantly every single day in an environment with three to four hundred children, of which he makes a group of X amount of friends. When you take that away, you're used to going and living your your life as an independent adult now. Children don't have that, and they don't have that maturity. So when you take away their social groups and their social aspect. You're then forcing them into a psychological place where they have to confront who they are, and they're not ready for this yet. So no, I don't think we are. <laughs> no, exactly. And uh, so you, I look at it. I look at it, and I think to myself, you know, I understand it is a danger, and we have got this virus to worry about. But it's not as open and shut as control your kids, keep them in, because the backlash that comes from a from a teenager who's struggling then psychologically without even knowing it it's not they don't even know they're having anxiety about not seeing friends etc so dealing with that is not as open and shut as keep your kids in you know it's not a case of being a bad parent no and that's why the the legislation is quite interesting because we're being we're being guided to do certain things by the government but the base legislation that can be enforced is a little bit different for example you've always been able to exercise as much as you like outside Mm -hmm. There is no limit on the time of it. Um, we're just being asked to be sensible about it. Yeah. So the, the legislation is slightly different from what we're being asked to do. Um, and you know, I think I think the vast majority of people are doing their bit. They understand that you've got to keep two meters away. We've got to, you know, we've got to, uh, got to contain the virus into the areas where the virus is, and we've got to reduce viral load on the people uh, that, that that we mix with. Uh, I mean, I was out running today, and running today, I was hiking out today. Uh, with with the huskies and um 
I've got a couple of Siberian Huskies, of course, that, that get me up, as I said. Um, so I was hiking out over the woods today and I had my headphones on um, and out of nowhere, a runner shot past me and brushed my shoulder. So yeah. I just went, two metres, please. Yeah. You know, just to just to remind them. I mean, what can, what what can what can you do? So yeah, you get yeah. the odd idiot like that that doesn't quite realise about you know you still maintain two meters distance, uh, but at the same time, I like the fact they were out. Yeah, exactly. They're still getting in shape, yeah. you know. It's get it's get that ba- It's all all about a balance, isn't it? Yeah, of um, course. You know, none of us. Well, well, it, it it's like the uh, uh, on on Facebook at the moment, I find it quite funny that, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a virologist, yeah. uh, I'm not, I've got no idea of the policy inside the NHS and links with the government and the rest of it. You know, I'm not qualified to give comment, so I just do as I'm told. It's it's a lot easier that way. But, you know, there's so many people listen to YouTube videos without facts checking, and, you know, it's like Karen on Facebook said, and therefore yeah. it must be true. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. It's, I mean, I'm one of those, I, I doubt a lot of the stuff that's being said. I put a post up the other day and it said, you know, I, I, do, I don't necessarily believe the virus is as bad as we're being told. I don't believe the impact is going to be as large. And I believe that the lockdown is probably going to be detrimental to the economy and stuff. However, I'm happy to criticise it whilst maintaining all the law, all the legislation they've asked me to conform into all the rules because I'm an idiot and I'm very often wrong. And if I'm wrong, but critical, no one suffered. If I'm wrong, but ignorant, I could infect many people. So I'll I'll happily be critical and say to people, I'll be critical, but listen, I'm going to listen to what they're saying because I haven't got a clue. Yeah, and and it's it's also uh, perceptions change depending on what area that you're in. For example, my local hospital doubled the ICU units, intensive care units, and they're on capacity. And we've got one of the highest death rates, well, not highest death, but highest number of deaths in, in our area. Um, there's, you know, I've lost family members, unfortunately. Um, so for me, it's it's a bit more of an impact uh, yeah. on my area, my, my locale, whereas other areas is very little. It's like, oh, there's no one in our hospital. It's empty. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. I'd Let's rather be where way. you are. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather be where you are than, than currently in a situation where I am. Uh, yeah. And I've got friends who are, who are nurses and doctors there that are going into these wards. Um, I've got a picture that a friend sent me from inside the ICU and said, this is what I face when they come to see me. And through the window, they've got people putting on full hazmat suits yeah. to go and treat her. It's, it's you know, it, it is really serious. And I think that if we didn't lock it down in, in, in some way, it would just be, you know, we would have a, a small little bit of cleansing taking place of the population. Yeah. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. You know, yeah. so I think, I think, you know, as you know, at, at your age, let alone at my age when I'm older, we all know that there's no blueprint for getting things right and everyone bumbles through it. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, exactly it. Um, what did you, uh, have you seen the UFC have got a fight card on this weekend? Right. Um, and... They've got a fight card on and they've flown everyone to Florida and it's been sanctioned in Florida. As soon as fighters come in, they get tested immediately um, They get for COVID. Then they go away. They've all got an independent room to warm up, an independent room with an independent sauna to make weight, etc., etc. Well, Jacare Souza just tested positive for COVID-19, right. as did both of his corner men. And it's been established that on Wednesday, he actually told the UFC my family members have tested positive for COVID-19. He was still allowed to come to the venue and apparently the show's still going to go on. Right. 
without him, he's not a part of it. But yeah, yeah I hope not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's been it's... interacting and stuff, and he apparently told them that. I mean, I I think as soon as it was announced that they were going to put a show on, people were critical, and rightly so. This is just proven now that, of course, rightly so. Also, if you've been told on Wednesday that one of your fighters has got a... uh, his family members have tested positive, it's a bad precedence to set, surely. Yeah, I think it sounds like they've actually been quite careful with it. Yeah. That they've they, they they've done risk assessments and they've worked. Uh, was it the three three uh, three steps of risk management? One, remove the risk, uh, which I think they failed to here because they should have tested him before we flew there. A week before, yeah, would, of course, which yeah. would be easier. Uh, but then you've got the risk mitigation, uh, and then now, unfortunately, if the risk actually happens, they're having to put that in place. Um, I think what they're doing is good for the rest of us because it's a portent of what's to come. It gives us, they've made a mistake now that will be corrected in the future. Uh, and we've all got to look to the mistakes made and make sure we get it right. So I'm, in some respects, I'm pleased they're doing it. And the others, I'm like, it's too early. But then I'm, I'm not an expert in this area. So, you know, hey, what do I know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also we get to watch some awesome fights. So yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's, uh, we. I can be as politically correct as I want, but at the end of the day, I do love a UFC card. So. Brilliant. <laughs> um, right. So let's have a look. Then, so you had your uh, your career, which yeah. I mean, people who who are listening who don't know too much about Gary's career, go and research it. It is an extensive um, fighting career, combat career over multi disciplines. So go and research it. Look on YouTube. Look up um, all the information you can on Wikipedia and stuff. It really is worth looking into. But then you decided uh, once you retired, you were going to pursue something else. So when did retirement come? And how did you know that this is where you wanted to go? Or is it something you were looking at through your fight career? Well, it was uh, 2009. I had a broken tooth. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd actually broken it quite some time before. um, And... It got got loose, and I went to see the dentist, and he said you need a tooth implant. So I went and had the, uh, to go have the tooth implant. I had a CT scan, and it showed that I had uh, not enough bone above the tooth to actually hook it into. So it was a two-phase uh, implant then. So I had to have a bone graft to give them something to. So that was three months for that to to mesh all in, yeah. um, and then you have the implant drilled in. Then it's another three months for that. Uh, three months of Basically, it was nine months uh, away from uh, where I couldn't compete as a fighter. Uh, and at 39, um, even though I still put, well, can still put the whippersnappers back in the boxes now, uh, age 49. But at 39, it was a case of, you know, I wasn't getting the contracts, wasn't getting the offers that I was from before. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, you know. I'm not going to fight for peanuts. And also there's got to be something in it for me. There was uh, lots of uh, fresh blood who wanted a piece of me, but yeah. that doesn't offer me anything. Yeah, I'm not exactly. getting paid. I'm not getting paid enough for it. Uh, and it's not of benefit for my own career. It, yeah. You know, I'd just be a stepping stone for someone else. Exactly. You know, and I, 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 I like to challenge myself and really push myself, you know, not to give someone sort of coming up an opportunity i want i want to keep pursuing my own career testing myself yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically I, I retired by default <laughs> and that's when i started but running that's probably the best way that's a good way to retire really because it means you don't have too much contemplate contemplatory shall i shan't i 
which yeah. is the limbo that I'm in now. In that I won my last fight by head kick knockout, and I get offered a fight straight after for literally peanuts. And I'm like, <clears throat> well, I, I can still compete with the guys, but at the same time, for for what purpose? So I'm in that contemplatory bit now where you weren't. You were just yeah. it comes. You were injured. You had that thing happen. Well, this is the time. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, it was what it was. You know, I still, I still train now. Obviously, as we come on to no head contact, uh, but I, you know, I still train now. I still keep in shape, uh, and I still want to be the level where anyone who comes to see me for training, I can push them and at least match them with what they've got. And if I'm training the top pro, that means that I've got to be at top pro level. Will yeah. I ever maintain that? No. Is that going to stop me trying? Heck no, because it's just it's 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 one of these things. I want to, you know, it's like you know, uh, eight weeks after a total hip replacement, I, I was kicking head height again. Yeah. You know, and, and and those that know me well know that I'm the most inflexible person on the planet. So <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's I want that ability. Uh, I want to maintain that ability. So I, I started running with a with a, with a running running friend, and then after a few years, I got the Huskies and started doing the ultra marathons. And I was running one day and I saw this local triathlete in the distance in the woods. So I'm like, icon boys, pick it up. And the Huskies pulled off and I'm running like mad behind them. And I shot past this friend. And he said, wow, Gary, you're going great. What are you in training for? And I actually thought then, what, what am I in training for? What? And then it suddenly came to me and I shouted back, life. Yeah. Now it's not, you know, it's, it's like, you know, all, all the sports that I did, I was only, I, I was only as good as that moment. You know, it's, the amount of fields that I did. You know, if you, if you take the the world's greatest Thai boxer, he's not going to be the world's greatest kickboxer, and he's definitely not going to be the world's greatest mixed martial artist. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's got their own thing, and it's like an MOT. You're only as good as that day. Yeah, and exactly. Then, yeah, you, you, you know, it's, uh, and, and so it's a case of what am, what am I doing this for now? Um, so it's, it was quite simple. Life, health span, uh, long, uh, long health. Uh, so long, long lives with good health. So yeah. just keep mobile. So keep my cardio going, keep physical ability going, keep some resistance work going. Just keep it on on, on moving. And that's when I moved into doing the ultramarathons uh, because I could. Uh, you won't get me winning ultramarathon races. I do the mountain races in the winter, you know, like 45 miles across the Brecon Beacons, the first yeah. Saturday in December, whatever conditions throw at you. Um, one year there was a hurricane or storm Desmond, and I was, I was running up Corn Dew up the precipice, uh, and it was 90 to 120 mile an hour headwinds. Yeah, wow. One, one, one lighter guy came past me, and he, he came past, and the gust hit, and I stuck still and he got blown backwards. He went, <laughs> bloody hell, Gary. He said, bloody hell. <laughs> You're standing still and still overtaking me. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, but I'm never going to win that. But the, only the first three or four sort of uh, 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 people that go off uh, on, on an ultra marathon are looking to win it. The rest of us are just looking to enjoy it. If you go off fast, you'll slow up. If you go off slow, you'll be able to pick it up. If you've done the training, you'll enjoy it. If you haven't done the training, you'll die, but still do it. Um, it's, a, it's just something just to motivate me and, and to keep it going. It's a mental it's a mental challenge as far as well as it is a physical challenge. It's that being the thing of being able to put yourself in the mind state of, I'm fucking hating this, but you keep pushing. And then two hours later, you're like, I feel good now. I'm happy again. 
Yeah, and it's it's also um, in- incredibly easy to do an ultra marathon because you're just there to finish. Uh, I think it's easier than even a half marathon because I know that all of us physiologically, if you can walk right now, could go out and complete and can complete the distance. Uh, how fit you are will just be how how much you like it, <laughs> how much you can, you know, how much pain and suffering you'll go through to get there. Uh, but let's just say if, if I put a gun to someone and said run, they'll be able to run. Uh, so it's you know we can all do it. Uh, but you know you're not worried about someone in a rhinoceros outfit overtaking you and oh my god i'm not on my 8 30 mile on this time because the conditions are constantly changing and as a result it's actually really friendly you get good banter with all the other runners uh good camaraderie uh everyone looks out for itself for each other you know it's quite it's quite good um but the mindset wise you know people say oh my god go 45 miles you're across the mountains you're that's incredible wow and i'm like nah because just just when you think like the fight sport just when you realize just when you th- you've achieved something you realize how small you are in the big ocean yeah. so like complete the 45 mile mountain ultra marathon then you got people like my friend robbie Britton, who three years ago was the world number two 24 hour ultra marathoner at the yeah. world championships um who did 163 miles in 24 hours yeah, crazy. And he came second. And and, and and people think like, wow, that's incredible. No, 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 that's not the incredible part. The incredible part is that's 163 miles round a track. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, and then but people like this who um, they do the, like the Moab 200 or whatever it is, and they do it, and then all of a sudden this woman, I think her name's Courtney Dollwater, yeah. she beats everybody by a, by a marathon. And you're like, what? What the hell? Like, so for everything, there's like, there's levels to this. <laughs> like, there's levels yeah. to everything. And like, for what you do is incredible. It's an incredible feat that someone a would want to do the forty odd miles over the Breckens or throughout Wells. Then someone your age. Then someone with your previous background in sports, with your injuries and stuff as well. So it is incredible. But then you, of course, being the person that you are, you look to the next people and like, no, no. This person's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always it's like something. Gym, um, um, uh, unit fitness twenty, unit twenty four fitness. Uh, the, the gym I do my personal training and and uh, my classes at. Uh, you you get in there, and you've got some of the world top bodybuilders at natural level and and, and competitive bodybuilders. Then you've got the physique competitors and the fitness competitors, and each and every one of them are incredible. But the fitness competitor wouldn't exactly win the bodybuilding yeah exactly yeah everyone's doing it for their own thing and then because it's an order shot home in the british army we've got the military people there and when we've got the soldiers there they're doing it for their for their um uh, sort of their performance as a as a soldier uh then you've got the general public some of them just wanting to get buff some of them just wanting to keep in shape. Some of them injury rehab. You've got people that just want to lose a little bit of weight, say. Everyone's got their own journey. And yeah. everyone's importance is only to themselves. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like I, I quite often have got Francis at the gym. Francis Moynihan. Francis is amazing. He, he's got arms with uh, biceps like, you know, they're the huge coconuts. And every now and again, I, I just squeeze off. You see it on my Facebook, it's a couple of pictures of me and Francis. We're doing like bicep poses. And honestly, you know, his, his biceps are the size of my head, whereas my biceps kind of like, a, it's like, kind of like a pistachio nut. Kind of hard to get into and find. And when you get there, it's a little bit disappointing. 
yeah. <laughs> but we do it, and I, I, we do it for a bit of fun. But also, it's a nice reminder that everyone's doing things for what they for what they want. Yeah, you know, exactly. he's not he's not a fighter. He can't apply it to fighting. But then I can't apply it to lifting the stuff that he does. Yeah. It's everyone's an individual, and I think that's the big realization that that I had in the last ten years is that you know no one's better than anyone else. Uh, <clears throat> we're all we're all just legends in our own lifetimes, in our own minds, and you know, uh, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we're just not that important. No, so I smile and do what we enjoy. Exactly, I say this to people all the time. I say what you're gonna realize within because obviously I coach a lot. So with fighters, I coach and stuff. Is it? But what you're gonna realize is nobody gives a fuck. This is the thing you're going to realize. The only person who cares is you. If you go back 10 years and you ask someone who the best fighter in the world is, they'd have said Anderson Silva. Without a shadow of a doubt, it would have been Anderson Silva or George St. Pierre. 100%. If you ask some guys now who watch MMA who are like 20 years old, 22, 23, who's the greatest fighter in the world, I bet you Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre don't come even in their top 10. They may not have even heard of them. Yeah. Exactly. Similarly with football. You speak to people now about football. How many people are going to mention Gascoigne, Maradona, Pele? And yet these were, when I grew up, these were like who football standard was judged against. So like I say to people, if you're in this sport for any other reason than your own personal gratification, get out of it. Because A, it's really hard. Yeah. B, you have to fight another man, and C, it's going to take stuff from you, as in it's going to physically, mentally take parts of your body away from you. So if you're in this for anything other than what you want to achieve, trust me, it's the wrong thing for you. Yeah. It's yeah. the wrong thing. I've, I've got the, the, the bugbear about the small town heroes. Yeah. You know, back back in the day when I were young, you know, we, <laughs> we would fight for no reward and we'd fight, we'd step up, we'd get a phone call. Uh, was it Gary? We're a fighter short. Can you fight Carter Williams in Ohio in five days' time? And, you know, to open the Arnold Classic. Carter Williams that year had bust up last for K1 Las Vegas. He'd won K1 Las Vegas. He was he was the American K1 champion. Um, I'm like, okay. So five days later, I'm in front of 18,000 people fighting Carter Williams. Jumped on the plane and fight him. It's what we do. Um, the classic uh, fight between me and Bob Sapp that never happened. Yeah. Uh, I was supposed to be fighting Bob Sapp. He then refused to get on the plane. But then Tank Abbott was called. Got off his bar stall in Hunterton Beach and said, oh, "I'll fight this scary guy." And he just and that's the way it used to be. We'd we'd all fight. Not only that, you know, I've literally had well over a thousand competitive bouts. Um, the fighters of today might have five or six in only their hometown and think they're some kind of a legend. Yeah. These, these kind of fight, and especially with the titles that go around now, you know, it's like, yeah, you're a world, world, world champion. Well, actually, you're just a world local show champion. Yeah. And you haven't even fought an international opponent, let alone travel. You know, it's that the insular sort of hero, you know. And to put it into perspective, these guys think they're really big fish. Now, I've won 13 world titles across three different fight sports. I had over a thousand competitive uh, bouts, fought in twenty six countries. I would consider myself a medium sized fish. Yeah, I'm not even a big fish, yeah. and let's just say I know the Goliath style fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if, if 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 you've not surpassed what I've done, you're not even a medium fish. Or yeah. to quote the classic Apprentice line, you're not even a fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of. It's it's the, the self-fluffed-up importance of it. Uh, you're only as good as that day. You're only as good as you thought. And there's always someone going to be better. So humble yourselves. You know, yeah. It, 
Like when I when when I started and when you were um, back trying to us and you people say, oh it's Wesley Murch, he's a cage fighter. Well, now someone says, oh he's a cage fighter. Like, well who isn't? Like who isn't? Now you can go and you can do six weeks training and fight on a white collar cage fighter. Like who isn't a cage fighter? Now I hate to be called a cage fighter. I like I like to be considered a professional athlete. If you can't consider me a professional athlete, let's not even talk. Let's not, you know, let's just not even discuss what it is that I do. Yeah, people are so it's it's the wrong reasons all the time. People want to be the artist man in their local pub. So yeah. That's that's what it comes down to. Which see, here's here's the thing, right? I I I've done a lot of work with the army over the years, especially the army sports teams, the army school of physical training, and you know, I'm I'm a sportsman. I need a referee. Uh, I think it was it 2005. I was a subject matter expert for the British Army on unarmed combat. I had a small role, part of a five-man team working on combat PT, which is a product the Army PTIs uh, used to be. I'm not sure they still are, but were, were rolled out with. Uh, Di Palmer uh, and Maz actually did all the writing. Uh, Phil McGregor, he, he's the guy that handled it all. Uh, Dave, Dave Garrett had a little bit of uh, uh, input. He was looking at it from an injury perspective. And because it was mixed martial arts based, they pulled me in. Uh, so we're doing this work. And I found it really funny that I'm here as an SME writing a product, helping to, you know, give them some little bit of input into writing a product that the Army PTIs can be rolled out with. And I've never had a street fight in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I need, I need a referee. You know, it's, yeah. I do find it funny. Um, you know, it's so I'm, I'm, you know, people say, yeah, Gab, but you're a great fighter. I said, no, no, I, I used to be an adequate sportsman. I said, these guys, these are trained killers. Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of a difference, you know. And it, it, it's really, it's really humbling when you know uh, there's. Um, uh, I was on one of the combined services judo courses. So on the mat was 120 Army, Navy, Air Force and SF uh, judo player and one civilian. Yeah. <laughs> like like uh, Maz would say, uh, take the class. Yeah, OK, we'll we end, end the class now. We'll bow off. We'll end the class now. And we'll reconvene at 1400 hours. And for Gary, that's two o'clock. I'm on I'm on this mat with, with, with some elite judokas there as well. So some British squad judo, judo players there. Uh, but each and every single one of them was a trained killer. Yeah. That's humbling for someone that's supposed to be a fighter. Yeah, exactly. You know, so these small town heroes that think they can hit a bag a little bit and, and suddenly they're a great fighter. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's put it into perspective. Uh, you're nothing. Yeah, exactly. And the thing exactly. that makes these trained killers better than everyone else or, or, or our civilians is that they realise there's always someone going to be better, luckier, more opportunistic. So yeah. they don't go looking for it either. Yeah. So yeah. people say to me, because like, I was I was a doorman for so long as well, just because it was being a doorman was really convenient with being a professional fighter because you worked on the night, all day you could train, and then most of the time you just stood around doing nothing all night. So it worked out pretty well. And then uh, people used to say to me a lot all the time, like, oh, it must be... It must be awesome knowing you're like the hardest man in the room or knowing you're like the toughest guy. I'm like, no, what, what my ability does for me, it allows me to know that I can get out of any situation without having to be physical probably because I'm so confident in who I am physically that I'm yeah. more likely to walk away or I'm more likely to not rise to your bait. And when you're calling me names, I'm more likely to look at you and think, 
dude, if only you knew. And I'm like, okay, mate. And that's what it does for me is in any situation, it allows me to give people longer abusing me. It means that if someone comes at me, I'm more likely to just like, like deflect. I'm going to say, listen, dude, let's not go down. And yeah. it allows you to not act the way that people think you're going to act in that, you know, could, could I knock out X person because he's not done anything? Yeah, probably. Like it's not, so am I going to? Well, no, I'm going to try and avoid that at all costs, knowing that I have other avenues to explore. And that's what it allows me to do. It allows me to act how people, the opposite to what people think I would act. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I did five years worth of door work, 89 through to 94. And do, doing the door work back then, we're at the end of the 80s, the 80s muscle movies. And one of the things from the 80s muscle movies were the one-liners that would have come out. So we would have some hilarious one-liners that we would do. Um, and, and so, there'd be, you know, some, some idiots kicking off. We'll be throwing them out. And, and I don't know, uh, uh, Pete Bowen would, would, would clip a guy. The guy would swing at Pete twice and Pete would slip, slip and just go clump him. The guy would say, oh, and he'd go out with, now bet that hurt, don't it, from Roadhouse <laughs> and things like that. We'd, we'd come out with just all the... <laughs> All the funny things, you know, like yeah. um, one guy went to attack the doorman in front of me and I just put my fingers over, over his eyes. And then I smoothed my shoulder against him and I walked him out and he couldn't move. I just went, be still, walk with me. And I just walked out my fingers on his eyes because he couldn't put move because the eyes, the eye pressure was there. Took it away and just popped him with my shoulder and moved. And he turns around and goes, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. Bam. Perfect opportunity for the one liner. No, because you're smart. <laughs> you know, the, the, the confidence in your ability to look after yourself means that you never have to actually apply it that's the exactly. best bit that's the yeah. best bit it's just having the confidence to not fight and the, people think like oh you could smash this person up you could I'm like, I'm like, i might not be able to but i'm confident confident enough to not want to I don't, I don't have any interest in also i've had fights on the door and i've hit someone broke my hand nine months no confidence yeah. Yeah, my, my answer to that is, you know, the, the, these are the tools of my trade. Yeah. If you if you worked in IT and had a laptop, laptop, you wouldn't just chuck it on the concrete. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the laptop would break and you won't be able to work. Exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah exactly. So, yeah. So you've you've progressed now, then, mate. You're um you're still teaching and coaching and stuff, but you're now you're onto your um, hypnosis, hypnotherapy, etc. Talk us through what that involves and why you wanted to explore that avenue and where you think it places itself with what you want to do, whether you want to work with fighters or whether you want to implement that with working with companies, etc. What's your, uh, what's your ideas for it? Yeah. So um, hypnotherapy, um, I've always had an interest in psychology because let's face it. If you see some of my fights, my ability uh, looks pretty terrible because it is terrible, but I would beat people. And I'd beat them through applied psychology. I'd use psychology to beat my opponents. Uh, and it's like Jesse Saunders from Shin Kick, Shin Kick My Tie. He'd say, Gary, you do things that you just can't do, <laughs> but you do them. So I always had this interest in psychology, the application, the artful application of science, as I call it. Um, and because I never charged the army, um, because they're the army and I abuse their facility for all my professional fight career. Um, so when they ask me to do some work, for me, it's giving back. Yeah. But you know, they, they're basically like, but Gary, you know, we've got to give you something, you know, I'm like, but I'm giving back. You've already given me stuff. You, you let me use your facilities, you know, for free. So they said, oh, look, you're an interest in psychology. 
says, yeah, come to some of our psych courses. So I've got access to uh, uh, go sit in with the army on some of the psychology courses, which helped me become a hypnotherapist. And it wasn't just the training that I received. It was the advice and knowledge that I was getting off the people on the courses, like the army interrogation specialists and things like that. Um, and it just really started fueling me. And I was like, heck, there's a lot to this. I've got a lot to learn. So I started plowing down books like I'm a, well, I'm a complete nut geek. Um, so, um, um, so I ended up qualifying, well, qualifying, certifying as a hypnotherapist and started working, uh, which I've done for, for the last 13 years. Uh, hypnotherapy is um, really misunderstood. Uh, hypnosis is really misunderstood, not least by hypnotists themselves. Uh, mm. There's a cognitive science behind it that very few people go into. For example, it's got nothing to do with sleep, eyes closed, anything like that. Uh, so hip hypnosis. Hypnosis is an intervention delivery system. Uh, an intervention is designed to change behavior. Behavior is how we move through time and space. So say, for example, you're not moving through your life how you want to. You might be getting moody at times or you might be snapping and getting angry at times or, or, or you're not achieving as much as you can in your sport. I'll design an intervention to help you be more the person that you want to be. And I'll just deliver it through that process of hypnosis. And it's really straightforward. Um, it's getting you to imagine stuff differently. Yeah. It's literally that straightforward. So it's like it's almost like a uh, would it be like a, a visualization? You're teaching me how to visualize the way I want things to be and then implement those changes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, there's uh, again, it's an artful application of science and getting you to imagine stuff differently is kind of like the heads that that's sort of the, the simplest explanation of it. It gets quite complex. We're talking sensation, how we perceive, how we uh, how the incoming senses are received, our attention and focus. It's a, a perception, which is our processing of that sensory input coming in. Um, it, it ties in with our memories, our language, uh, the entire cognitive process, and then how we actually have the resultant behavior at the end. Uh, so it is a highly complex um, set of happenings taking place in the background, but I can't get away from it. I just get people to imagine stuff differently. It is that straightforward. <laughs> uh, so the correct scientific term for hypnosis is phenomenological control. Phenomena is an observable happening. Yeah. A hypnotist will control that observable happening. We control phenomena. We control your experience. Great hypnotists will teach you how to control your own phenomena. Therefore, you can be the person you want to be without needness, which is what I try and do in every session. So this happens with a sense of involuntariness and a sense of ease. In other words, it just happens. So, for example, something simple like someone who's got a fear of spiders. They see that spider. They imagine it one way and that's creating a behavior. They leave after about three minutes because it doesn't take long. And now they're imagining that spider completely different. Yeah. Creating a different behavior instead of, oh, it's a spider. It's like, hey, it's a spider. Yeah, it's literally that thing. Same thing, imagine differently. Yeah. And no matter how much you scale it up, it's the same thing. So with hypnotherapy, all I'm doing is helping people imagine stuff differently. Just so it happens automatically with a sense of involuntariness.
Yeah. It's really straightforward. Yeah, it, um, makes, it makes a lot of sense when you uh, when you describe because of course people hear hypnosis, hypnotherapy, they think Darren Brown or Darren Brown or people clucking like chickens or someone down Butlins getting someone to do something. That's what people what people think of. They don't think that that is. They're not seeing that that is a um, glorified or even like a like a showman side of the actual therapy that's being used. That's like the off branch is done to make like the showmanship side of it. They yeah. know that hypnosis and hypnotherapy is an actual tool in, in the use of which you're using it. Yeah. It's, you know, the control of phenomena. So, so people like Darren Brown, uh, Martin S Taylor is a friend of mine. He's the guy who trained Darren Brown in, in hypnosis. Um, and you've got people like Ian Rowland, who's, who's pretty high up in the magic, magic circle. who taught him to cold read, which is the psychology and linguistics of being a psychic medium. No such thing. I actually asked Ian uh, once, uh, Ian, you ever met someone who you believe actually is psychic? And he's like, no. He said, when you analyze everything that everyone's doing, it's exactly the same psychological and linguistic patterns. Mm-hmm. However, he said, I have met people who honestly believe they are psychic. But when you break it down, they're just doing the applied psychology that is not realizing it because we get caught in our own cognitive biases and dissonance. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we can still um, so like, like, like Darren's really clever because he, he plays with people in my situation where he makes out he's doing it all this clever, clever, clever way. And yet he's making us believe he's doing it one way. So we go, ah, we know how he did it because we've got a little bit of insider knowledge. But he's actually doing it something completely simpler, more simple. And normally it's something really, really straightforward. Uh, um, James Brown, not the singer, uh, James (laughs) Brown, the hypnotist, mentalist and magician amazing friend of mine uh and he's incredibly talented um he, he he's absolutely he, he's a genius with attention movement he's known as a professional opportunist every time i shake hands to him i check i've got my watch my phone everything else because he's, he is a, such a highly skilled pickpocket uh and at one one year at a hypnosis convention um he did a, a demonstration on stage of how you how easy it is to direct someone's attention and he had someone sitting opposite him on a chair facing each other and they had a box of tissues and they had us all in the auditorium a few hundred people in the auditorium watching and he says okay watch i'm gonna make this tissue disappear and he put it in his hand and went look it's gone and it was gone <laughs> and this person was like oh my god let's do another one and he kept on going it was gone and of course us in the audience are wet ourselves laughing because we can see exactly what's happening. So he's getting another bit of tissue and he's in his hand. It's gone. No, this can't be. No, look. Watch more closely. Watch, watch, watch. And he, get, and he keeps on going. In the end, he goes, gets a whole load of them, puts them in. Right, it's in this lot. This lot, it's going to go, it's going to go. In fact, when you blow on it, it's gone. So what? When you blow on it, it's gone. He goes, he blows on it, it's gone. And the guy's like, no, it can't have. No, you're right. Never go when you blow on it. What happens when I blow on it, though? Blows on it and it's gone. Yeah. And this guy's like, jaw hitting the floor the rest of us in the audience are rolling around laughing as we're seeing how easy it is for someone's attention and focus to be manipulated because all he was doing was putting in his hand distracting him and chucking it on the floor beneath his chair yeah but even right in front of him this guy could not see it couldn't see the sight of hand couldn't see the slide well it was a it it wasn't even a sleight of hand It, it was literally an obvious Chuck on the floor. It was that obvious. But he was redirecting the person's focus and attention. 
Yeah. And this is what people like Darren Brown do with the showmanship. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, especially in a fight context, is one of the things that I used to do was make people believe I was somewhere where I wasn't. And I'd make them move where I wanted them to be. For example, obviously, you know, you, you know me, but those that don't know me know that I'm, I, I, I was pretty well known for my sweeps. Uh, if you want to see me sweep, you have the legendary fighter Badder Harry, who I think I put on his ass eight times in one round when I fought him, <laughs> just sweeping. And I'd sweep him and carry on walking, knowing that there he is, he's landed now. You know, it was, I put him up in the air. I had this, this sweep timing. And one of the things that I would do is as I threw a cross, where's, where's the mic? Where's the, where's the camera? As I threw a cross, I wouldn't throw it directly towards the person. If I wanted them to move that way, I'll throw the cross slightly this way, manipulating them into moving this way, which is right onto my sweep. So I'd make people move how I wanted them to move. I'd make them appear. Uh, I'd make myself appear to be further away than what I was. I'd be doing little weight shifts, little perception changes, changing the way that someone perceives the world. Um, I'd be using slight, if you're talking sleight of hand, um, circular movements. I'd move a circular movement and you've got to pay attention to a circular movement and I'd sell it as well. And I'd look there and people's attention then, 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 then follow as, of course, the left drops low. And as I look back, the left's not there, but it's come round behind their guard, looped around and got them. I'd, 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 I'd play with their perception, I play with their experience to manipulate it. Uh, and that's all I do with hypnotherapy, is I'll then play with your perception, how you experience the world, manipulate it in an artful way to help you get the result that you need. So, uh, all makes sense, and especially, it really makes sense, what you're saying about with the fighting, it really makes sense in the fighting point of view, because people are, um, people are taught to fight a certain way. This is how punches yeah. come at you. We do this, we do that. And so I obviously spend so much time around coaching and fighting. I try and teach differently. And I think about footwork and I think about cutting off angles. And I think about preempting what your third punch is going to be, not what your first yeah. be because of reactions and stuff. But so let's take that. I can see how it's easily applied for fighting. Definitely. Let's take that out of it. But um, when it comes to the other, uh, just training people who might be, say, I don't know, wanting to not smoke or wanting to get over a fear of a phobia of any kind. Yeah. Are certain people more susceptible to this or can it be also with someone who's not open to it? Will they be more difficult to work with or is it just a way of you finding a way to break down what it is that's that's blocking that? It's, it's easy. So I would suggest that some people are susceptible to classic methodologies. So yeah. classic, classic approaches, they're really susceptible to it. But then you get the one who isn't. So it's the flexibility that you, that, that you need. For example, to show how easy it is to, sh to change everyone's behaviour, um, let's have a think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just think of, thinking of a fighter. Uh, uh, here we go. So behavior is movement. It's movement of mind and movement of body. So let me let me create some movement in you, for example. Whatever you do right now, don't think of Conor McGregor in a pink tutu. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you've got to then form an image in your mind 
now you're thinking of it and then you get the physical movement <laughs> you know going taking place um, um i was gonna say i, I could have said you know don't think oh, I, no, i'm not gonna go there i was someone else in a pink suit <laughs> quite funny he used to be at the trojan gym uh, <laughs> yeah because that would be funny to be fair yeah um but like you, you started laughing so I got your brain to fire in a certain way. Don't think of Conor McGregor in a pink tutu. Because you, I, mean, I guess you've put the image in my head that I've not got to think of. So it's too late because you've implanted the image for me to ignore. That's right. That's right. So then what I did was I repeated it just a moment ago. So Hebb's law, neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah, so I fired your neurology. Don't think of Conor McGregor in a pink tutu. Yeah. So you had to put that thing, that thought together. You're now linking Conor McGregor and Bink Tutu in your head, forming that images and then, then create a bit of laughter. Then I've allowed a little bit of time and then the neurology is actually making connections in the background and yeah. it's starting to wire. To wire it stronger, I then repeat it yet again. Don't think of Conor McGregor in a pink tutu. And I think that's four times I've recorded it with little gaps afterwards. So you've got stimulus and response. And allow it to consolidate stimulus response allow it to consolidate i mean then you can take it even further and start attaching it to other things for example uh <laughs> think of every time where in the past you've heard of conor mcgregor and every time in the past when you thought of conor mcgregor think of how funny it would be to think of him in all of those situations in a pink tutu for the very first time you heard of Conor McGregor, all those press meets, all those fights, just think of what he'd look like, what he'd be like, how he'd be changed, how your perception would change if you think of him in a pink tutu. In fact, every time you think of him in the future, think of him in a pink tutu. So much so. I mean, imagine that, that every time you think of Conor McGregor in the future, all you can do is think of him wearing a pink tutu. Completely imagine it in every context. Every media, every bit of sensory input of Conor McGregor, all you can do now is think of him in a pink tutu. Continuously imagine it, so much so, you just hear Conor McGregor and think of pink tutu. And imagine it happening automatically. So much so, the harder you try not to think of Conor McGregor in a pink tutu, the more pink tutu you get with Conor McGregor. That ginger beard, the pink tutu, I mean, what would that be like? Imagine that. So all I've done is just, I've, I've got stimulus response and consolidation. I fired your brain. Yeah. got the response so the response becomes paired with the stimulus yeah. allowed it to consolidate and embed and repeated it the more times it repeats the more it LTP, embeds right? so an LTP long term potentiation you got it see where's he knows his stuff so <laughs> I mean, what happens now when you think of Conor McGregor for example he's wearing a pink tutu that's just yeah. the way it is yeah so this is like neuroscience neuro I had a neuroscientist on a couple of podcasts back um uh, it's a massive, it's a massive interest to me. Uh, synapsis between, uh, like the, the part that synapsis plays, and we were looking at um, a big connection. We were looking at trauma in in childhood and how it affects um, people growing up. So mm. it was a really good talk, really interesting. But neuroscience has been an interest of mine for probably 10, 15 years. Back when I was originally fighting, psychocybernetics and NLP, all these things were an yeah. interest of mine. So I read lots of books by Maxwell Maltz and people like this. So I was really interested. So when you start to talk about hypnosis and hypnotherapy the way that you have, it makes sense to me that it's just a connection of synapses and then LTP to make things work. That makes a lot of sense to me now, yeah. um, which... You know, obviously, I've not done, I've not done a lot of um, I've read up a bit about hypnotherapy and hypno hypnosis, but a lot of people who are listening to this won't have. It attracts a lot of say paraglider pilots, a lot of 
um, fighters, and they might not have done, they might not be in there, but they might listen to this and think, shit, I'd never really thought that hypnotherapy and hyp- hypnosis is actually psychology, neuroscience, LTP, yeah. and all of these things put together. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it is, there's a massive science behind it. Um, it piggybacks on the entire set of cognitive sciences. It piggybacks on psychology. It, it's just, there's nothing magical about it. There's nothing woo-woo about it. Uh, it's just literally just helping guide someone's brain. It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, and, you know, most of the, the things like inductions and things, uh, relaxation and such like, um, it's not necessary. Yeah, They can have their uses, but it's not necessary. Um, in fact, if you go to my YouTube channel, um, you've got videos of me running around the UK hypnosis convention a couple of years ago, just creating hypnotic phenomena out of the blue, making things invisible, sticking hands to a wall, forgetting names, crushing people's necks like Darth Vader, pushing people over using the force. That's a capital T and capital F said in the style of the stick. Yeah, the <laughs> Jedi's have got it wrong. I am a Jedi and it's the force. Uh, you're pushing them over, just having fun, just showing them that, most of the stuff that they do is fluff and is not necessary. You can just cut straight to the chase, which is the observable phenomena, which is hypnosis is correct scientific term now, phenomenological control, which is a bit of a mouthful. Yes. Yeah, it's one of those, you, you've replaced a word that everyone knows with something that is a uh, very scientific in a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I, I like it. I like the idea. I like the principle I know, I know obviously only from my own reading and my own research. I don't want to practice hypnotherapy. I don't want to practice yeah. hypnosis, but I do understand that it's a key part of, um, of people who want to perform at the highest level. I think lots of people don't realize how much psychological input there is in these large sports organizations from football to fighting etc and i'm someone who people people find this a bit strange about me because i'm so um because i'm quite well read and i'm so focused on psychology and the implementation of psychology in fighting especially with my fighters and as a coach i think i'm better at it than i was as a fighter i i've lost fights before previous fights because what do you think's happened and i'm like it's something psychological because i'm in my fight and I know, like, I'm not nervous. I never used to get nervous. Obviously, they'd manifest themselves in a way that didn't manifest itself in other people's, like, nerves don't manifest itself in other people. But for me, I never, it never exhibited itself in the same way as a lot of other people. So when it came to fighting, I'd say have a game plan. My game plan is when I fought Court Warburton, Court Warburton, he doesn't like a tough fight where I'm going to go at him, I'm going to hit him hard with a big jab early on, I'm going to let him know I'm in your face. This is it. I'm, I'm here yeah. to stay. So we go out. I walk towards him. I visualized it a lot. You know, it's it's in there. It's exactly the psychocybernet, the psychocybernetics. NLP is all work, and I know it's going to go. I walk out. Think, well, I'm going to jab you with a really hard jab, and he's just out of range. And I throw this jab over yeah. his head in, and I launch. And as soon as I miss with the jab, <coughs> shoots underneath and takes me down. I hadn't prepared for that physically. I hadn't prepared yeah. for that psychologically. And when it happened, I was like, "Oh shit! I've made a mistake." Then by the time I get back on track. It's too late. I've got a guy who's one of the best in Europe on my back choking me. And I feel that psychology really let me down there. My, all my, my ability didn't let me down as a fighter because I've trained with people off his level regularly. I sparred 
continually up to the fight. It was looking good. But the psych the psychological aspect really let me down. And then when I started to couple that into other things and other sports like base jumping and paragliding, people suffer with a lot of fear and a lot of, um, yeah, they, they struggle with a lot of anxiety. So I started to look really into psychology and, ang- and anxiety, etc. So it's really been like a focus of mine in how, how I can make that work for other people where it maybe let me down. And yeah. so I was like, I've been intrigued by it. So then when you say that hypnosis and hypnotherapy is very much along the same lines, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it's something that other people may have dismissed as maybe like woohoo. And then now you've just made it sound exactly like it's a psychological experiment that can work because psychology works and no one disputes that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, It's quite, it's quite funny when I'm, um, because uh, I've been lecturing at, at Winchester um, as a, a contracted lecturer, uh, and because because of the, the, the doctorate that I'm doing, and it's multidisciplinary. I'm in with the sports sports guys, sports coaching, sports sociology, sports psychologists, the psychologists, and such like. Um, so I've been in and taught hypnosis uh, there, and even the kids of today who haven't really heard the kids. I'm showing my age. She's like 18 to 21 year olds, you know, <laughs> on average. You know, <laughs> I'm saying kids. <laughs> I'm old. Uh, get down with the kids, Gary. Uh, as I'm teaching it, they, they come with the, the, these misconceptions as to what it is. So the first thing I do is, you know, start manipulating them and start showing them how how, how their minds can be guided, how their imagination can be guided to change their behaviour, to create a different reality for them. And then I just show them quite simply how I did it. It's really, it can be really straightforward. Um, it's like, ah, and the whole combination is, it's imagining stuff differently. Yeah. You know, I don't go through, I, uh, you know, if you go to a typical hypnosis training, you'll be learned about James Braid, who invented the term or coined the phrase, instantly realised he was wrong. Um, instead of a sleep-like state, he realised it wasn't the state and had nothing to do with sleep. So hypnosis, the, 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 the translation is sleep-like state. It's got nothing to do with sleep or relaxation. It's got nothing to do with states. Uh, and he wanted to call it mono-ideaism, where you lock your mind around one idea. Yeah. But that was too cumbersome and hypnosis had stuck. And it's therefore created this misrepresentation throughout history. Um, when it's not, all we're doing is just guiding people to imagine stuff differently. Yeah, so it's, 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 psychology, it's psychology and psychological reprogramming, basically. And people hear hypnosis in the, the way that the word's been abused over the years and they get lost. And maybe yeah. even the, the practice is discredited somewhat because of that, when in actuality, any psychologist who you see is using a form of hypnosis. You, you got it. You got it. And um, every... so. Behavior is how we move through time and space, internal and external environment. An intervention is designed to change someone's behavior. Hypnosis is an intervention delivery system. Mm-hmm. And hypnosis just gets people to imagine stuff differently. Whether it's CBT, whether it's counseling, whether it's electroshock therapy, <laughs> whether it's hypnosis, when it's the NLP interventions, it's all exactly the same. It's hypnosis, getting people to imagine stuff differently. I, so- a way that I can put this into layman's terms for people, they don't need it, you've done it very well anyway, but to, for I like to work on a lot of visual cues. So yeah. for me, I would be thinking, if you would look at the all the results, that psychology, electrotherapy, hypno, hypnosis, if you look at all of those things, it's the same, all the, everything that it's trying to deliver is water. All that those different things are, like hypnosis, um, 
uh, electroshock therapy, all those things, they are just, one's a tap, one's a hose pipe, one's a well. They're all delivering you the same product, just different facets of doing that. That's a good way, that's way of looking at it, you think? You, yeah, completely. Definitely. Yeah, okay. Because I, I mean, I've done um, lots of people within paragliding and stuff, paragliding predominantly as opposed to base jumping, paragliding and stuff. I've given a lot of talks now about fear, fear management, the psychology of fear. Uh, there's one on YouTube that I did recently, which was a Q&A. And I say to people, I'm not a psychologist. I have no qualifications. All I am is well-read on the subject, and I'm going to plagiarize other people's work and deliver it back to you. It's good, though. <laughs> now, one of, the, uh, one of the things that I do early on when I talk about fear is I let people, make people understand all fear is created by them. That's the first aspect to understand because you're born with maybe, it's not proven scientifically, but two fears mainly um loud noises in falling so yeah. then i say to people look, you have to understand that fear is so the way that i make people understand that it's fear is created by them is i say this yeah imagine you're in your house and there's every time you come out of your room a bear comes out of the other room so the bear comes out of the room you panic and you chuck the bear a piece of meat and you're like shit he's gonna eat me then you go back in your room and you think, oh my God, that bear's out there, it's going to eat me, what am I going to do? You go out your room again, the bear appears, and you chuck it another bit of meat because you're so scared of it eating you. Well, you have to ask yourself, is the bear coming because you're feeding it, or are you feeding the bear because you know it's going to eat you? So eventually, when you stop feeding the bear, are you going to realize the bear's going to walk straight past you, down the stairs, out the door, and you'll never see it again, and it'll only be a memory, or is the bear going to attack you? What you're going to quickly realize is you've opened the door that initially let the bear in. You've yeah. now got the bear in the house and you're maintaining it by your feeding the bear. Yeah. So the moment you stop feeding the bear and you give the a chance to attack you and you realize it's not going to, then you can work on how you progress from there. And as soon as I say that to people and make them think of a bear or feeding, it's a lot easier to process than just saying, well, you've put the fear in. I need to find a way to psychologically change it and reprogram your synapses, etc." It's not as difficult as people make out. It's still, that's not me undermining neurology or neurological yeah, or psychological yeah. processes, but it's not as difficult as people believe it to be just because they think it's a neurological or psychological problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's really funny that when people come to me with what I would term major problems, they're often the easiest to resolve. It's it's quite it's quite funny. The far-reaching life issues tend to be the real the real easy ones to solve that we tend to solve in almost like in a miracle session, like like one you know one session hit. And but this has been taking over my life for twenty years. Where was it gone? Why? What's happened? And out they go. And my gosh, their life is awesome. Normally things like that are actually really straightforward to solve i remember one week it was almost like you know i'm not religious but like i was jesus you know <laughs> have some food <laughs> your leg will regrow arise again from the dead it was like that that week and the very last one was uh, uh i need to stop eating chocolate and i've got these amazing successes military ptsd that week civilian ptsd that week and everything was like wow and everyone was like you know it's like you can walk again you can rise it was it was miracles happening <laughs> and then the very last one i need to stop eating chocolate and had zero effect that session <laughs> yeah there's no rhyme or reason to it really but you no know, just because something seems complicated doesn't mean to say that the resolution needs to be complicated too yeah yeah and often you know, people 
I've lost you. I've lost your Wes. Oh, you're back no, again? Back, back. I'm back again. I'm back again, yeah. I had this the other day. One of my podcasts crashed. Virgin's been struggling with their internet lately, so hopefully we're back. We're um, back. Yeah, I was saying, um, so people, one of the biggest influences is somebody will tell someone, he can't fix you in one session. If he tells you he can, he's talking rubbish. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. he might actually be able to. You're creating a negative um, a negative impact on this person that they're going to carry into the, into the procedure. You got it. So we got the placebo effect. So uh, therapeutic success needs five things, uh, or, or you need to consider five things. One, therapeutic relationship. You need to be able to work with that person. Two, I work like mad to increase placebo. Placebo is not just a rocking band from the 90s. Placebo is also the power of positive thinking. It's got a massive effectiveness, so a massive efficiency. So I look to raise that. At the same time, I look to remove nocebo. Nocebo is the power of negative thinking which is what you just explained there. You know, oh, you're going to get hurt. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to, be able to do it. That's creating nocebo effects, um, negative thoughts. So I look to remove the nocebo. Then we've got natural reversion. Some stuff just gets better on its own. So yeah, I've got to allow for that. And then the true <laughs> magic of sessions is the artful application of all of those four, plus the application of Hebb's law. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. We get the neurons to fire differently, allow them to wire differently, repeat, they wire stronger. It, it's, it's, it's not complicated. I'm a guy. There's nothing that I do is complicated. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward what we do. I've lost your ways. Oh, mate, you're back. I don't know what's I'm going back. on here. <laughs> How much did you lose? Um, no, so you, you uh, basically I caught you where you said um, we just covered um, Hebb's theory of Hebb's law, Hebb's law, yeah. Hebb's law, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, it's no, I get confused. Hebb's law is also called Hebb's, um, oh, I'm going to P, Hebb's. Oh, it's got two, two, you can refer to it in two ways, can't you? Hebb's law or Hebb's, I'm oh, completely, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so what far, what it, Neurons are fired together, wire together, yeah. Yeah. So basically, it's like a, an implementation of when people say muscle memory, basically. It's basically yeah. a neural link of creating the, a behavior that links the, the, the way that the brain interprets it and making them work up together so it continues to do so over time, yeah. You got it. You got it. And it, yeah, the thing I said that we may have been lost was that there's nothing that I do in my hypnotherapy that's complicated. Everything I do in life is simple. After all, I'm a guy. Uh, so don't ever think of it as being complicated. And in fact, in sessions, what I do is I, I, I look to take the magic away uh, you know, and show people how easy it is. And you know, I teach them what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And they're like, heck, it can't be that straightforward. Oh, yeah, but what happens now when you think of that time when you went down that alley and that guy did that thing to you? Well, well, now I know it just reminds me that I need to smile and live my life now. Yeah. Ah. You know, whereas before it's like, oh, my God, that man's doing this nasty stuff to me. Ah, you know, same stimulus, but completely different response. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no. nothing I do is complicated. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. And um, I, uh, so what, one thing and one area that I, uh, that really highlights it for me. So I, I had these instant incidences. Um, so I would feel like I was 
out of my body, remote viewing what I was actually doing, and then yeah. all of a sudden, like an overwhelming, like, whoa, and I never knew what it was. I went to the doctor with it, and I told him, and he was like, oh, it's vertigo. I was like, well, it doesn't seem to match vertigo. Yeah. And I read Steve Martin's book years ago. Um, uh, it's called Born Standing Up, I think. And um, right, right. I read it, and he described exactly what it was that I go through. And I was like, he said, like, and then he said it was a panic attack. And I was like, no way do I get panic attacks. I'm not, of all the people you would think who get panic attacks, it's not me. I don't get panic attacks. And it's uh, basically when your your brain gets so focused on the, the, the thing that it's doing at the time that it's anti, uh, it's disassociative, um, disassociative anxiety, basically. So it gets so yeah. focused that when you actually realize you're back where you are, you can like, <gasps> Like a shot. Oh shit! Now, so then I knew what it was. Oh well, I can control this now. Yeah, no, yeah. I couldn't. I, I, couldn't, couldn't, at the time, I couldn't. I was like, oh, oh, I know what this is. I'm going to be okay. <gasps> it still hit me, and I was like, what the fuck? Like what? And I mean, this would happen once every couple of months at the most. Yeah. Then I started to get it when I was paragliding a couple of times, and I felt honestly felt like I'm going to jump out of here. I'm going to jump out of this paraglider. And like up five thousand feet up, and I'm like, I'm gonna jump out. And of course, I was never gonna jump out, but psychologically, and I was like, so then I was reading another book about a um, uh, forensic pathologist, and he had exactly the same thing. And it's only when I started to look at this as more psychological problem, and instead of it just being oh panic, oh well, I have panic attacks, and to admit you have panic attacks seemed a bit stupid. Like a guy who base jumps and paraglides and is a professional fighter has panic attacks, but. I started to look at it and the psychology behind it and I started to feel that, yeah, this is what it is. I need to realize how to process these things better. As soon as I realize I'm getting so deeply focused, it happens when I drive at night, for yeah. example, because I get so fixated on the white lines and stuff and then boom, it all hits me. And then when I started to look at that and I thought, how can someone who psychologically sort of understands psychology and... Um, and don't consider myself to be in any way psychologically vulnerable. How can this be happening to me? And that's when I realized that, ah, it's just processes and things that you need to change, little differences that you to, need to make and way to recognize them. That made me think, imagine if you weren't someone who was in a position to do this yourself and analyze what was going on, how scary that would be to suffer real panic attacks. Because what, what happens to me is not a real panic attack. It lasts a couple of seconds. Real panic attack, real anxiety disorders how scary it would be to be someone in that situation and how lost you would be without someone like yourself who can help you understand and deal with that. Yeah, yeah. especially when you've got a fear, all your focus and attention goes on the source of the threat rather than the solution. So yeah. it's very hard for someone who's having a panic attack to go, I'm having a panic attack. Oh, I know what I need to do. I need to do my breathing exercises. I need to do, you can't do that because all you're thinking of is, oh my God, it's a lion coming in through that door. Ah, it's a lion. You know, you're not going, ah, it's a lion. I call you Simba. Now that window's open. I'll climb through it. You can't think like that because it's, oh my God, it's a lion. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's very hard for someone in those situations to find their own way out. And as all they're doing is putting the focus and tension on the problem and then the nerves and the worry kick in the old chattering monkeys it can exacerbate it and just make it even worse it's it's yeah it's it, it you know i'm lucky that i've never suffered panic attacks uh, i'm human so i have suffered fear i have suffered anxiety but not the not the panic attacks at all uh, and i can only imagine what it's like for these people who who have them that are quite serious um because it's it's yeah it's, it's got to be overwhelming especially in our current climate um 
where because I think people have underestimated exactly how hard this must be psychologically for so many people and it's what's bad is it any psychological problem is seen as um, a weakness let's say or it's seen as an illness and a lot of the time it's neither an illness and it's neither a weakness it's basically a lack of understanding of the processes or a lack of understanding of what what you've allowed to build up and it's finding a resolution for that so someone like yourself and being in a position to to simply say listen all i'm doing is i'm talking to you and i'm allowing you to hopefully that allows people to realize that i can cure this i can you know i can get on top of this and i can just reprogram the way i handle things and i can deal with situations like the lockdown uh, a lot better yeah, I mean, everyone's, you know, I, I, I'm incredibly psychologically robust, but I've had a couple of wobbles. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm missing the kids, I'm missing the grandkids, I'm missing my clients and my friends I train with, I'm miss, missing hitting things, um, you know, I'm, I'm missing, you know, my parents. I'm, there's, you know, it, it's my whole life's changed, you know, I'm self-employed fully, so it's like, heck, you know, how am I going to, how am I, how am I going to survive? Um, it's, it's, everything's all everything can all kick in you know um it's it because life life changed and i've had a couple of wobbles the only thing that i know for my position is it it is transient that state of mind will pass and and that's what makes it easier to get through uh, and also i'm vocal about it to the right people yeah because I'm focusing on the threat, I just know that if there's a problem, I just let let my girlfriend know, and she'll take me through it quite nicely. There's a couple of key people that just make a little little sort of alert that goes out, and they're like, oh, come on, Gary, you know what you need to know. Yeah, yeah. okay, it's transient, Gary. It'll pass. Yeah, this is just life. Yeah, people yeah. will recognise the triggers, but they're not looking at the. So they notice the triggers and they focus solely on the triggers. Oh no, I know. Like if you're agoraphobic, I know going outdoors is a trigger. I know, but let's look at what's the the counter. Let's now look at and let's focus on what's the counter to those triggers. Do we have to prevent them or do we have to find a way to manage the triggers? And how can we establish a way to work once those triggers have been fired? That I think, I mean, this is just me surmising from listening to you and from reading books. I imagine that that would be the process that someone like yourself would go through with a client would be, so here's triggers. Let's recognize what the triggers are. We know them. Let's not focus on these anymore. Let's find a way to handle what happens. Yeah. Focus on what you need to do to achieve what you want. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's the simplest way. You know, it's just, just straightforward, you know, or, or, or honestly, the amount of times in sessions, I've I've kind of like surmised the session with remember, just imagine being the person you need to be. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. You want to short circuit everything. If, if, you know, agoraphobic, you know, you've got fear of going outside the open spaces and such like. How would you want to be? Well, I want to be going out there fine. Well, imagine being the person. Imagine doing what that person would do. Imagine, need, just literally, just imagine being the person you need to be in that situation. How would you be? Well, I'd be calm. Well, imagine being that person. Go out there and be calm. It can be that straightforward, but people are you know, we, 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 we've got this knack of humans of overcomplicating things. Well, actually, it can be damn simple. Those things happening, uh, you are you can actually reprogram the synapses and make it physically uh, some something that happens. Yeah, 
I mean, this, this this starts linking through to the PhD work, but all mentation, all thought is biological in origin. So, you know, uh, the mind is a resultant of a functioning brain. Um, there's no evidence of a mind existing without there being a brain, um, perhaps different to being spirit and soul of your religious I'm talking from purely a scientific perspective here, but all mentation, all thought is biological in origin. And we know that if we change the way that our biology uh, is, for example, through uh, you had the, the, the child brain insults before, uh, or, for example, if I hit you repeatedly in the head causing brain damage, uh, your thoughts will be different because the structure changes in which it operates, the machinery changes. You change the machine, you change the resultant thoughts. At the same time, if you change the way that you think, that automatically changes the structure as well. So it works both ways. The two, you know, the mind is a resultant of a functioning brain. They're, they're, they're integral. You need your brain uh, to create the thoughts uh, and your thoughts create your brain. It, it's, it's that circular process. Yeah. Or yeah, circular, not even circular, interlinked. You know, symbiotic <laughs> relationship. I don't know, but yeah, it's uh, so. Yeah, all, all all the thoughts are biological in origin. Uh, so if you change your biology, uh, you you change the way that you think. Yeah, which is why AI struggles mainly with the fact that. Oh, lost Oh, you're back, I think. I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, yeah. AI struggles was what I got. So AI struggles with the fact that they can't replicate the brain or the mind. That's the biggest holdback with AI, is they can't make them very sentient. They can replicate actions that the brain does, but they can't replicate the mind and the brain and the two, the symbiotic relationship to have, which is why, luckily, luckily they can't replicate that as well. But um, that's what makes it so... getting closer and closer every day, though. That's the scary thing. You know, you've got serial yeah, processing now in, in computers, yeah. which which was the big breakthrough. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, they, they'll get there in the end, I think. You know, we will see Terminator with <laughs> <laughs> Cyberdyne technologies. But, you know, it, it, fortunately, it's a long way off at the moment. Yeah, fortunately. Um, mate, so let's touch quickly on your um, PhD. What are you up to? And then we'll get, a, a generally I do about a minute, an hour and a half or so because, uh people's attention span differs yep, but yep. also it's because i've got so much i want to talk to you about that we're better off doing another podcast because i'll go off <laughs> and we'll be here for three and a half hours yeah, you're um, a <laughs> um, yeah so your phd mate what's it i know it's um like multi like, not multifaceted but it's like multidisciplinary yeah yeah so what i'm doing is i'm, I'm the 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 sort of the multidisciplinary nature of it it's the the behavioral effects of head impacts in combat sport athletes yeah. So basically, um, uh, the, the, if you it, it's to do with the fight sports, us guys, us fighters, uh, and the way that repetitive head impacts uh, change the way that we think, act, and behave. Uh, so, for example, uh, if I hit you in the head, that will create changes in the brain. That will create damage in the brain. Um, that brain damage creates this neurometabolic cascade. So in the short term, um, you'll have even six headers of a football have been shown to lower cognitive abilities, inhibit memory, um, um, 
make your uh, motor coordination bad, um, stop you from learning efficiently, just some six headers of the football and that lasts a short period of time. Um, these can go on to create the symptoms of concussion, the things like headaches, fear of bright lights, fear of loud noises, nausea, dizziness and such like which can persist. 20% of people have these symptoms last for over a year as well. Uh, we've then got chronic uh, uh, effects of these head impacts, which are mood disorders, uh, increase in impulsivity, uh, depression, aggression, and things like that. And then we've got the late effects, which are the earlier onset and more rapid development of chronic diseases like dementia, Alzheimer's disease, ALS and other motor neuron disease, uh, multiple sclerosis even, um, Parkinsonism, um, and of course the particular effects of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE as uh, it's more popularly known. Um, all of these happen later on in life. So we can't get away from the effect, the, 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 the um, basically in fighting, uh, We've got a power bar. Imagine a power bar of ability in your brain where if you get hit with a heavy hit, bam, that power bar goes down really quickly. And if you got a little hit, it goes down a little bit. So it's the overall nature of the hits that you're getting and the overall number of hits that you're getting. The more times you get hit and the heavier those hits are, the more brain damage you will have. The trajectory of evidence is pointed that the single hit to the head causes a brain injury, a traumatic brain injury. More times you get hit, heavier you get hit, the worse those injuries are. Once you've got an injury, those areas are more likely to suffer further and worse injuries. So getting hit in the head lowers your ability to get hit in the head again. Yeah. Um, Long-term twin studies, 13,000 sets of twins in a finished study. People who have had a single concussion had worse life outcomes over an entire range of markers. Health, money, socioeconomic status. In other words, we need to look after our brains as fighters. Uh, so my whole emphasis of my doctorate is about keeping us safer. Letting us have an informed decision so we know the risks before we participate. And for those of us who decide to participate, it's making it safer for them. In the fight sports, we've got a traditional hyper-masculine culture. Suck it up, buttercup. Come on, man up. Ah, you can take that knock, that kind of thing, where actually we need to change it. We need to change it from the train hard, fight easy to the train clever, fight easier, and be safer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the study that, that the, the actual main emphasis of the, the, the actual direct research element of it is I'll be looking at the effects of sparring compared to body boxing and bag work on the way that our brains operate to see that if in even a single round of sparring, we can show that you've got severe neurological deficits. Yeah. And how long that lasts. So I want to influence the sport in such a way to make it safer, both by way of training practices, 
um, and both by way of sporting practices as well. I want to help drive awareness of the complete and utter lack of medical attention that we get in the fight sports, um, especially uh, um, at the lower levels. Even at the higher levels, it's generally lacking. Uh, the, you know, what signs, you know, if you ask a referee, for example, what training they've had in recognising the, the, the visual signs of a traumatic brain injury, they'll look at you and probably won't know what you're on about. Yeah. Um, a, a colleague of mine, uh, one of my leading peers, uh, Alex Channon from Brighton University, has just started publishing some, some, some results of a study that he's done. So he's got, I think he's got three papers out and a fourth is a related paper um, on the incredibly poor state of medical attention in the UK fight industry. It's amazing when you've got a doctor saying that fight has got to be pulled out and promoter overruling it and allowing the fight to continue. Yeah. We've got unregulated medical staff. They've got no medical training delivering it. You've got medical staff not meeting nice guidelines or the British Medical Journal best practice guidance in what to do in respect to uh, uh, concussive brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries. It's, it's horrendous. So everything from that to I want to change policy. Uh, at the moment, uh, my thoughts are removing eight counts from fights. Uh, I think they are not necessary and I know that they increase uh, the, the brain injury that the person will get. Um, you know, and people people might turn around and say, but that will never work. And then I come back with, well, it works in mixed martial arts. Exactly, yeah. But but they might have then gone on and won the fight. Says, yeah, they might well have done, but they might have also got worse brain injury and we've got to put the fighter safety first. But here's a thought. If he lost because he got stopped because the referee would have previously given him an eight count, well, you know something, he yeah. should have been hit in the first place, should he? It's all down to him. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think as well, we we suffer with a with a mass massive masculinity problem within sports because even now, as someone who teaches younger, I mean, I teach kids as well, and the amount of adults who want me to get their kids sparring, and I don't yeah. let any of my kids spare sparring head contact, and they're like, sure. "Where's I want so and so to spar?" I'm like, "Okay, well, you come and spar with me, and as soon as we've done three rounds, you get your son to go and spar." Oh, well, well, no, I've never fought. I'm like, right, let, trust me, there's no reason for your 10-year-old child to get punched in the head. Believe me. It's yeah. not going to make him tougher. It's not going to make him a better fighter. Trust me, he doesn't need to be getting punched in the head. And then the three, 24, 25-year-olds who know the risks, they hear about CTE, they see it in, in fighters happening regularly now, at least once or twice a month we're getting fighters diagnosed or wrestlers or American football players and they still want to go and spar. And I'm saying to them, like, guys, listen, you don't need to spar three days a week. Like, I can tell you stories of people knocking each other out at Trojan. I can tell you stories yeah. of which you experienced that you trained at as well, I'm sure, yeah. because it was just part of training back then. It, it's but, what we um, did. I mean, we used to have Friday, Friday afternoons, big boy sparring. Talking about the hyper-masculine nature. Yeah. It used to be because uh, a super heavyweight needed uh, another super heavyweight and I got called up to go and do it. So yeah. it was, it was you know, super heavyweights fighting. The more super heavyweights would come along. Um, and then people with the balls to do it, the big boys, would turn up. And the lightweights would turn up. And it just used to be this Friday afternoon, 4 p.m., shouldn't kick my tie. 
we used to mash the heck out of each other. Exactly. And we thought we were being heroes. Yeah. Now I realise how stupid we were and how stupid it was actually making us. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 incredible. You can hear the terrible damage as well. That's and I try and say to people now who are the younger 24, 25, 20, I'm like, listen, don't think this is not gonna happen to you. It's not brain trauma is not something that happens to certain people. Everyone who gets hit in the head is going to suffer brain trauma. The more you get in the head, the more brain trauma you're going to serve, uh, you're going to um, encounter. And the harder you get in the head, the even more that's going to happen. Now, if you, if I jab you, if I, we have a, just a stab spar, and I jab you 35 times in a three-minute round, and then that's fine. Then you come back the next day and we spar again, and I jab you 35 times. Like, yeah, we only jab sparred yesterday, but you took head trauma. You don't need to do this three, four days a week. And I would say you don't need to do it. Once you've got a base of, you don't need to spar if you are not in fight camp. The moment you are training for a fight for a small period of time, maybe look at sparring. The rest of the time, it's not going to be necessary. And the negatives are always going to outweigh the positives. Not only that, every hit lowers your ability to take a hit. So, so you're, you're more likely to going to get knocked out. Now, you just gave that little figure there of 35 jabs to the head in a, in a round. Uh, to put that into context, the average boxing match at a competitive level is 15 hits to the head per round in during three minutes. Now, here's a thought. Six headers last year, Sterling University did a study. Six headers of a football reduced your ability to, to it reduce your, your, your fight ability. So it reduced the ability to respond to stimulus, to think, to have memory, to learn. It, it decreased the motor coordination of the person. Just six headers of a football. Here, you've just hit someone 35 times Here, in three minutes. you've just hit someone 35 times. Yeah. It yeah. just makes it worse and worse and worse. The same Sterling University then went on and did three rounds of boxing sparring and it had exactly the same result. And I'm looking at taking that research even further on into the fight sports. People don't need to take the repetitive hits to the head, especially in training. Yeah. Um, even you know, even if people have got the information and they still want to fight, which hey, I'm all for that. I love my fight sports. Uh, yeah. I do want to make them safer. I do think, uh, especially because of the developing brain and your neurologist a couple of weeks ago with his brain insults the children, the pediatric population will, will again confirm how bad it is to be hit in the head when you're a child. Um, so I, I don't want any head impacts for kids uh, at all. But for those adults that want to do that. You've got my full support, uh, and, and, and I'll give you that. But if three rounds of sparring for 48 hours lowers your motor coordination, if you spar again, it's yeah. going to get even, even more worse. And you never recover from that. Um, what basically happens is uh, you, you've got something called a cognitive buffer in the brain. So if, if, if A has got to go to B, but it snaps... Now A can't go to B. A now can reroute, go to B and go to C. Yeah. So it's like, ah, oh, symptoms have recovered. The symptoms have recovered because instead of going A to B, you're now going from A to C to B. You know, you're, you're, you're diverting. It's now slower. You've actually yeah. slowed how fast your mind can work. If you get hit again, that one may get damaged. Now you might have to go from A to D to C to B. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, but you know, I'm three days on now and, and, and I feel fine. Everything's working again. 
it's working again. It's just slower than before. Yeah. And this is happening to motor coordination. So if you've got a, a, a traumatic brain injury, if you've been hit in the head, in other words, you, the more times you're hit in the head, the more likely you are to have an injury from your muscular skeletal system. So more likely because your coordination started to go. So basically in training and competition, every hit to the head is making you a worse fighter. Yeah, exactly. So then this is what I want to get across to people with my research. That's one of the main overriding things in my research. I want to change the way that the entire fight sports actually operate from train hard, fight easy to train clever, fight easier, fight safer. Yeah. You'll be better as a result anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're like the amount of guys who go to the gym and they're like, oh, no one was training. So me and me and Bob went and we did five rounds of sparring together. I'm like, was there a coach there to watch? No. Right. Was there anybody there to oversee it? No. I'm like, so basically you've punched the shit out of each other and you've got no benefit from it because the coach hasn't told you what you're doing wrong. You weren't working on specific things. So you've literally shortened your career, made yourself a worse fighter. And the only benefit would have been telling you what it was you were doing wrong and you haven't even got that out of it. Out of it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It is crazy. But unfortunately, this is the nature of the fight sports. Um, and, you know, I, I've been called a hypocrite. For, for, for the attitude and approaches that, and the study that I'm taking. And I'm like, why? It's like, come on, Gary. You used to, you used to go and fight the big guys. You used to mash your own head up. You used to do the incredibly hard sparring. I'm like, yeah, because we didn't know any different then. Yeah, exactly. But we do now. You know, it's, it, it, it's very frustrating for me because, you know, it's, it's a deeply personal study because I'm seeing all the chronic and late effects. Um, it's a portent of what's going to come to me. And people are like, yeah, Gary, but you're okay. I'm like, yeah, but for how long? And compared to what? Exactly. You know, I might have even solved Brexit. I'm doing, so, yeah, Gary, your brain's fine. You're doing a doctorate. You're doing a PhD. I'm like, yeah, but compared to what? Uh, you know, I'm lucky that I might just have a lot of uh, – uh, uh, I was having a chat with Andre Menard from um, Eurogym on this because uh, he's like, yeah, I feel fine too. Now, if we break it down a little bit, we will be noticing difficulties that are traditionally as a result of the head impact. Like um, I have uh, 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 an impulse control issue if someone wrongs me. Uh, luckily, I'm not a violent person, um, so I quote statute at them. Yeah. But like the, you know, uh, uh, my hip replacement is, is because I got taken out by an off-lead dog. Um, and when I'm working my dogs, I don't want an off-lead dog getting involved. And if I ask someone to call their dog back and then they don't, I do let rip at them. Yeah. This impulse control has gone. Uh, it's like I'm driving a car uh, and uh, I've gone over a rock and everything's working fine. Everything's working efficiently. Only I went to put my foot on the brake and it just didn't stop. <laughs> because <laughs> that rocket damaged the brake line yeah and, and this is what happens with fighters it's a lack of impulse control uh fortunately i quote statute at them i quote legislation at them uh and 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 give them what for verbally with some choice words but i'm not physically aggressive in that way uh but say someone has an aggressive tendency and something makes them snap and they've got no brakes that's where the violent tendencies come in this is where people make poor business decisions. This is where people might start gambling or start drinking and things like that. This impulsivity. Uh, suicides. You've got on average eight minutes from the person deciding to commit suicide and attempting the act. Eight minutes. 
With a lack of impulse control, it's likely to be quicker, which is likely why there's so many athletes who have had repetitive head impacts like the NFL, uh, like the classic Mike Webster case, who commit suicide. Fernandez, uh, what's his name? Um, Aaron Fernandez, is it? Yeah, Netflix film. Yeah, Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez. Hernandez. Yeah, um, he committed suicide. Was that down to repetitive brain injury? Yeah. Was it the lack of impulse control that made it? Yeah, I'm going to do it. He's already done it. Yeah. Um, so all of these things we need to take note of as fighters because they might have this effect. Uh, you know, it's it's scary. Once once seen, you can't unsee it. Uh, where is it? I think it's this one. Yeah, I'm reading. This is when I decided to. Um, I did probably around 300 hours of study before I decided to uh, even even apply for the PhD. And this one's uh, neuropsychology of sports related concussion. And I'm going through it. And as as, as you can see here, I by, by the lines everywhere, I, I study books. Yeah. And then I've been down all the references in the books as well down the rabbit hole. But when you see this subconcussive head impacts appear to play a prominent role in the pathogenesis of CTE. So in other words, the more hits the head you get, the more likely you're going to be screwed in later life. Yeah. That's that's the summary of it. Yeah. You get hit in the head, you're going to be screwed in later life. And in the in, in you might even see my little little profanity in the in the in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, at that point, at that point I realized, excuse the language, I was fucked. Yeah. And suddenly I saw the relevance of all of my work. Uh, that's why I've that's why I've that's why I've like double dog eared the page so I can I can yeah. find it each time. Um, it's a it's yeah. It, once you once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. That's the problem. Yeah, and so, it's the hardest bit is making other people aware of it. And uh, because let's be honest, for ninety nine percent of all professional fighters, financially it's not going to be worth it anyway. So you've got people who are fighting for UFC world titles. A couple of years later, having to have a full-time teaching job still because they never made enough money to retire on. So realistically, for 99.9% .9 of everyone who does a combat sport, it is never going to financially be viable to that or that much cognitive function. You've got it. People think there's money in sport. There is not. Yeah, exactly. Only for an incredibly small percentage and i'll say it'd be the the you said you know 99 wouldn't get would, would, you know wouldn't, wouldn't earn from on the sport enough to live off basically so that means one percent would i would suggest it's only one percent of that 99 percent of that one percent if that kind of makes sense yeah yeah it's a tiny little figure and then here's a thought uh, how many athletes then go on to lose their money and in some respects, it could be down to the how many athletes go on to lose their money, and it could be down to the repetitive head impacts, frontal lobe damage, and the impulse control going. So they're making bad business decisions because they're not thinking it through clearly. And suddenly, even though they've had money, now they've got no money. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so lots of the time, addiction is linked to, to this as well, whether that be in the form of drugs, alcohol, gambling, all sorts of addiction and then through addiction you're very much dwindling money and then sure. anything you did make is gone as well um yeah. mate listen i uh i i we're gonna cut this now we're gonna uh, yeah. end here now but this is uh 
I really love this subject. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe in a couple of weeks we can come back and we can have just a CTE-based talk, if you wouldn't mind. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Because and perhaps you can get perhaps people listeners can give questions as well. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, we've yeah, got we some get options. Some yeah. 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 Um, but, mate, honestly, I like it's been a pleasure to have you on. And I would I could do this all day with you, mate. Like the subject matters are absolutely fantastic experience in every subject is superb and you're just a great guy to talk to you're you're good to have on so thank you very much it's it's likewise and i I just love the fact that you've gone off base jumping and and shooting and you you know parachuting and you you you, um what's it called Uh, hang gliding thingy what's it paragliding yeah paraglide i've got to get it right yeah paragliding with your your kite above you yeah and it's yeah i think that's incredible and you know i i Let's just say that we could probably down many orange juices and lemonades together over a pie. <laughs> Definitely, mate. But, um, mate, is there anywhere? How should people follow you, get in contact? What should they look at? How should they keep in touch with what you're doing? Well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, that's always the best place. So uh, Gary Turner on, on, on Facebook. Uh, I've got a picture of my huskies running through some woods as my, my banner, as me and my girlfriend. Mate, you have to, on, on sorry, go through that again. Yes, sure thing. I've lost you again. I'll wait till you're back. Hey, where's he's back? He's back. He's back. Uh, so yeah, so people want to get hold of me, they can get hold of me on Facebook. Uh, I've got a public page. You know, come and contribute to some of the discussions as well. Uh, that's always good because I like getting thrown curveballs. I only know what I know. And there's some people who know a lot more than me. Not only that, there's people who can throw me a complete curveball. Gav, you actually thought about this? Facepalm moment. Yeah. Um, I've actually got a new metric. It's called rate of facepalming. How many times you facepalm a day? <laughs> and I tell you, as I've gone through my doctorate, um, as, as as I'm proceeding through it, it's almost like a drum and bass song being beat out of my head now. You know? <laughs> yeah. So um, they can contact me uh, via my Facebook page, which is the best one. I'm on Twitter as well. You can find me on Twitter, uh, Gary at GaryTurner.co.uk. Gary at GaryTurner.co.uk is my uh, email as well. You've got some personal questions, by all means, you know, get hold of me from there. Yeah, just get in touch. You can find me. Superb. Well, mate, as I said, like we're a few few weeks time, we'll get together. We'll do one specifically on brain trauma. Um, this fucking internet's been a pain in the ass, so I don't know. <laughs> I've got to figure this out. Um, but uh, honestly. Pleasure. Thank you very much, mate. And uh, I will catch up with you again soon. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Stay there, mate. I'll get rid of these guys and I'll say goodbye to you personally. Yeah. Hiya, mate. Hey. That's awesome. Thank you. You're great. Fucking idiot.